I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. Joining me in the studio are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Chris Thompson, one of our Lex writers. We'll also be hearing from Alistair Gray, the US banking correspondent in New York, and from Filippo Aloati, senior credit analyst at Hermes Investment Management. This week, we'll be taking a look at the news that Monte de Paschi, the world's oldest bank, plans to cut 10% of staff and close 500 branches in a bid to boost profits and help it raise 5 billion euros in fresh capital. Secondly, we'll look at the struggles of Western investment banks trying to make money in Asia. And finally, we'll hear how the curtain has come down on a fairly upbeat earnings season for US banks. Starting with Italy's struggling Monte di Paschi di Siena, widely seen as the weakest of the big banks in Europe, and it was the big failure in the European stress tests earlier this year. The bank has got new management. Its new chief executive, Marco Morelli, this morning announced a new turnaround plan, the latest in a long line of turnaround plans at Monte di Paschi. This one involves cutting costs, selling assets and closing branches. Joining me now to discuss whether this is a viable plan and be enough to convince investors to pour a planned 5 billion euros into the bank is Filippo Aloati, Senior Credit Analyst at Hermes Investment Management and Chris Thompson from the Lex team. Chris, what have you made of the announcements this morning? Well, the first thing to say is that the market reaction has been fairly indicative of the sentiment surrounding this bank. Shares initially rallied by around a fifth up to this announcement, and they've been at some point down by the equivalent amount since it was announced. So the fact is, is that the new CEO, through no fault of his own, his success and the success of this plan is in a large part going to be governed by events completely beyond his control. And that is because in addition to this business plan, its success rests upon hiving off this 25 billion or thereabouts portion of bad loans that have been weighing on Monte de Paschke for some while. And in addition to that, they need to raise, as you say, 5 billion in new equity. And that's in addition to the 10 to 12 billion they've actually raised in new equity since the financial crisis. I think the new business plan, if you can get rid of that overhang on Monte de Paschke's balance sheet, then investors can have more confidence in the asset side of what the bank holds and the profits it's able to generate going forward. It's worth mentioning that since 2013, pre-provision income, i.e. before loan losses, has actually been going up year on year. And at the same time, expenses have been, albeit slowly, decreasing. So again, getting rid of the loan losses is key to unlocking the profitability in Monte de Paschke. But that success is, in my opinion, largely beyond the new CEO's control. 
And there's also a political risk in all of this because this plan is being launched and is expected to be put into action both the hiving off of the bad debt portfolio or most of the bad debt portfolio and also the raising of the new capital is all going to be launched at the same time as Italy's having a referendum on constitutional reform and the Prime Minister Matteo Renzi could resign over that if it goes the wrong way. That's right. And Italy potentially being plunged back into recession with all the dire consequences that entails for Eurozone economic growth and so forth. So it's worth mentioning that Monty Paschke's troubles have coincided with two or even three over the last five years, fairly brutal recessions for Italy. It has been climbing out of that and growth, while not great, is respectable by relative standards in the Eurozone. If that reverses because Renzi has to go, then again, the success of any business rescue plan will be thrown into doubt. So the uncertainty, even if all goes to plan, is still very high. Finally, Chris, some analysts have been a bit sceptical about this latest plan, not least because this is a bank that's made more than 15 billion euros of total losses over the past six years. And it's got a market capitalization of about a billion euros, and it's trying to raise 5 billion euros of extra capital. So, I mean, the task ahead is huge, but the plan that the new management has come out on seems to be based on growth. It's based on loan growth, and they're planning to grow the overall loan book by several percentage points. I mean, in a very low or negative interest rate environment and a very low economic growth environment, that's ambitious, isn't it? It is ambitious. I mean, I think what it requires is the assumption that they can reverse recent trends because gross lending has been falling over the last few years, year on year. And if you take into account the provisions, net lending has been falling even steeper. So it would require a reversal of that. Their gross lending figures, which they've revealed, I think forecast for about 2% growth from now until 2019. So if Renzi stays in office, if the Italian economy continues to improve, maybe that's doable. But again, there are lots of different pieces to the jigsaw which have to slot into place for this bank to deliver the type of double-digit return on equity which it's targeting over the next three years. Thanks, Chris. And now turning to you, Filippo, what have you made of the plan and what's your initial reaction to it? Well, um, the uh, recapitalization plan on Monte de Pasque is, uh, I guess, it's the key driver for both the credit and the equity of the banks. We know that the deconsolidation of the non-performing loans, the 28.5 billion, needs to happen because that was a board decision they cannot really go back to. And uh, I get from the uh, business plan there were a few uh, new news in the sense that uh, it was very much in line with what uh, was expected back in the summer. What's your reaction to, in particular, the plan for swapping some of the bonds into equity? As a credit analyst, how do you see that? And do you think that will be attractive to a lot of the bond investors? In terms of the uh, recapitalization of the bank, I guess that's so this uh, LME bond buyback angle it was expected because with some news in the last weeks and months. I think it's interesting, and then together with this, it's important that now they have a part of the shares for sale will be earmarked for a large anchor investor, which also been in the press over the last few days and weeks. And as for the technicality of the liability management exercise, we know that it's a voluntary in the sense that you can expect a decent premium in order for the exchange to succeed. And then also it will be mandatory applied to subscribe new shares. 
So there is actually an interesting dynamic because there is some overlap between the bond holders and the equity holders in the sense that the lower the price to book value at which the bonds are exchanged, then the higher the chance that the bond holder end up uh, to some extent owning the banks. So from the bond holder perspective, they got an equity investment angle as well, as long as the exchange is done at a very low uh, price to book value. Does that mean you think the bondholders are likely to welcome this exchange into equity, this voluntary offer to swap their bonds for shares in the bank because they could end up controlling it? Yeah, exactly. You could end up controlling it. I guess that's what there is uh, basically two motivations. The first one is uh, just to get out of a decent premium because even though then they have mandatory to subscribe the new share, this can be technically done through a trust uh, mechanism by which the bondholders really don't get the hands on the equity, but they sell the equity in the open market once the transaction is concluded. On the other side, there could be a equity appreciation angle because if they think so that the bank can really reach the target as highlighted in the business plan of, uh, I think, 11% return on tangible equity, then arguably if it is done a relatively low price to book value, say 0.2, 0.3, we'll see when the details are disclosed before the EGM on the 24th of November, then it could be also provided, of course, so all the different pieces of this uh, recap plan goes according to the design, then it could be also an equity uptick on, on this. There are a lot of moving parts here, and you throw into that all the political uncertainty around the referendum. There's a high risk to this strategy, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. To, to begin with, so the, the strategy was, uh, to some extent, high risk, high reward since the beginning, since they um, performed badly during the EBA stress test last August. And um, I guess to some extent, so the discussion has advanced in the sense that We've gone from a right issue of $5 billion to a capital increase or capital plan, I would call it, entailing this bond buyback program, which I think in theory should make the transaction more uh, doable because uh, arguably a right issue of $5 billion for a bank like Monter, so with the check at track record was very difficult to sell. With a market capitalization of only €1 billion, Euros, or roughly, exactly. raising $5 billion through a rights issue was always going to be nigh on impossible. So swapping the bonds into equity is more doable, you think, but it's still risky. It's still risky, but it's more doable. And also, we have to think that the subordinate bonds of Monte amounts to something like Euro 5.2 or 5.3 billion. So in theory, you could cover the capital gap by using the bondholders. Yeah. What about the retail investors? Just finally, because in the past, some of these debt restructurings that other Italian banks have done have ended up with losses being imposed on retail investors, which has hit pensioners in particular, who've invested a lot of their savings into these bank bonds. And those retail investors have been badly hit. And that's been politically very difficult to stomach. Is that likely to be a theme in this restructuring? It could be, yes, because if you remember, so the four uh, bad banks, they were resolved uh, back in November last year. They were very minimal in terms of uh, total market because they only had 1% of the uh, total deposit market in Italy, but they caused an appeal in the market. And then, of course, so here we're talking about probably €2 billion Euro in terms of the tranche originally on, I should say, because some of these bonds, they found their way into the capital market. Then it's two billion. It's a big chunk of the um, board. By retail investors. Exactly. So I guess so here it's a trade-off between uh, offering these guys something in order to smooth the transaction and at the same time make them aware that in case this plan doesn't fly, then uh, there's potential more trouble ahead. Okay, Filippo, thank you very much for joining us and, and talking us through what seems like a very high-risk strategy, but with high stakes, I guess the bank has very little choice. So switching from Italy to Asia, Laura, you're just back this morning 
from a grand tour of Hong Kong and Singapore. And you've been meeting a lot of the investment banks out there and talking to them about the state of the market. And you wrote a very interesting piece about Morgan Stanley earning a fee of some $25,000 on an $800 million Asian equity deal, which you contrasted with some of the big fees being paid by Western companies and used that as a prism through which to examine how Western banks are still struggling to make their Asian activities profitable and a really strong area of growth. What have you found out there? I think the deal in the Morgan Stanley case just really shows the lengths Western banks are sometimes willing to go to do things, which if you look at them on their own, it just looks like it's a totally mad on economic decision. But banks feel because the market has become such a competitive market, a lot of the large US banks are still in there. Some of the large Europeans, the likes of UBS and Credit Suisse are still there and very competitive. Deutsche Bank is still there, although not as big as it was. So is Barclays. At the same time, you have a rising crop of Asian banks, the Chinese in particular. So it is a brutally competitive market and that is pushing some banks to do things which just look mad but the idea is that if you do this deal for a very very thin margin you will get paid in other ways so in the case of this deal that you mentioned earlier the fee of $25,000 for an 800 million equity deal that obviously makes no economic sense in its own right but the bank's hope is that they will get some other business off that. So they will get a brokerage fee for placing shares and there's going to be some kind of spin-off business to that. But it still illustrates the fact that banks are having to go to very extreme lengths. I mean, if you talk to a banker in the US market, they would not do anything for a $25,000 fee. So it just shows that banks really, if they want to stay relevant and if they want to retain a presence there, they need to have a volume of deals. They need to be in the market. They need to be seen to be winning deals, to be seen to be active. And in order to do that, they're doing some pretty extreme things. And some of the Western banks are trimming or even pulling back more seriously from the Asian region. RBS has pretty much comprehensively pulled out of most markets. Deutsche Bank is retrenching, Barclays retrenching, even Goldman Sachs has been cutting staff in the region fairly heavily for them. Are we finally seeing some of the weaker players wave the white flag? And could this be the start of improved market conditions for others? This is a really sensitive topic out there. And even banks who are from a factual perspective Perspective, cutting their headcount in the region are very, very insulted if you suggest to them that they are doing any kind of pullback, even banks who are demonstrably pulling back because Asia is still seen as the fastest growing market. If you look at the investment banking fees overall this year for the first nine months, basically the whole world was down except for APAC, where fees overall were up 13%. So banks feel like they can't afford to be seen to be out of Asia in case it does at some point deliver on the promise people have really been waiting for for years. You are also seeing different positions being taken. So you've mentioned some of the European players who are pulling back and who certainly have. I mean, in the case of RBS, there really isn't any question there. They have fundamentally withdrawn from Asia. Barclays has also made some fairly fundamental changes, effectively closing Asian equities. So you do have that, but also you have some of the other Europeans, the Swiss, who are really heavily investing in the region. So Credit Suisse and UBS have both been hiring heavily, have really put it at the centre of their plan. And their whole idea is that they are trying to leverage the wealth management business and they're two of the leading private banks in the region and the investment banking and the markets business. And the idea is there are going to be massive amounts of entrepreneurs created in Asia, China in particular, over the coming years. The hope is that if you can get in at the bottom floor, you could have a client who will have founded a company, built up a lot of wealth in the company. He will use your investment bank to IPO the company or to raise equity. Then he will put the money in the private bank and you can have a virtuous circle there. So 
people see very different Asian opportunities. Some of the banks see it as being a really tough slog and they have to be rational, even if they think that they do want to keep a toe in the market. There are the realities of the cost and it's a very expensive market. I mean, if you compare it to the US market, you have to be deep in so many regions. You have the issues of language, you need to have teams in lots of places. From a research perspective, it's probably the most horrendously expensive market in the world. But the growth opportunity is one that banks feel they can't afford to ignore or also afford to be seen to ignore. So it's leading to some pretty strange trends out there. Yeah, but still toughing it out. Thanks, Laura. Now switching from Asia to the US, where a resurgence of trading on Wall Street has grabbed the headlines from US bank earnings season. But it's still pretty tough for the retail divisions of the big lenders. So-called net interest margins, a closely watched measure of profitability, remain near historic lows. Mike Mayo, bank analyst at CLSA, joined Alistair Gray to discuss the ongoing problems caused by low interest rates. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. How big a problem is this now um, into the whatever year we are of near record low NIMS? Well, the biggest damage has been done. The net interest margin or NIM is down one fifth this decade. And we think while it's down a little bit in the third quarter, we think it should stabilize going into next year and actually increase over the next three years. So you're seeing the first turn this decade in net interest margins, likely in 2017. You think we've hit a bottom here? I think we're close to a bottom. I'm not saying it's one or two quarters, but certainly over the next one to two years. How big a problem is this, Mike? Well, at first, it's been a major problem. You've had downward earnings revisions for U.S. banks for the last several years. The silver lining, though, is it's forced banks to get tougher with their expense management. So you've seen more restructuring programs, streamlining programs at the U.S. banks that helps to mitigate the negative impact of declining margins. And they're also lending more, right? So overall net interest income is rising in in many cases. But are they lending fast enough, though, to offset the pressures? No, lending alone won't do the trick. Revenues at U.S. banks this decade has been the worst it's been in 80 years. And that's a combination of the lower net interest margins and Loan growth that this cycle is really half of what it is in a typical cycle. So banks need better cost control, better expense management to ensure a faster earnings growth. In what sense are they taking on more risks by pumping up the lending? Not as much as in the past. Banks will make bad loans. That's part of banking. You're never looking for zero defects. But the industry has de-risked and delevered any signs of problems. The, the regulators are all over the banks. So the, the global financial crisis, nowhere close to that. So we have to start thinking about lighter recessions for the downside, like maybe 2002 when you had Enron and WorldCom. But we don't even think you're getting close to that sort of level of loan losses the next couple of years. And despite all the difficulties and the challenges the sector is facing, you're, um, you say that you're the most optimistic about the stocks in 20 years, right? How come? We are absolutely the most positive on U.S. bank stocks in 20 years. First, you have credit quality, which should stay better for longer. It's not going to stay where it is now, but it should stay below the long-term average the next couple of years. Second, you have capital. Capital is the highest it's been in 80 years, we simply look at the equity to asset ratio. There's enough capital at U.S. banks to withstand two housing crises. Third, cost control. This should improve. In fact, we think the branches, the number of branches in the U.S. should decline dramatically. If branches went back to the level of the 1950s, you'd have a 40% reduction 
of reduction of 35,000 brands in the United States. Now, you're not going that far in the industry, but directionally, that's correct, and that should help. The cost control and fourth, capital markets should show improvement with U.S. banks gaining share from European banks. So we're more positive than we've been in 20 years due to cost, capital, credit, and capital markets. All right, Mike. Well, thanks so much for coming in. That's it for this week. All that remains for me to do is to thank Laura, Chris, Alistair, and Filippo, and to thank you for listening. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Please go to ft.com banking for more banking stories, and we'll be back next week. Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.